0: The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. You may be seated. Wow, what a morning. Are you encouraged, man, that our kids, parents, that your kids not just sing that but really own that? They belong to the Lord. What a great truth. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for the encouragement that comes by the Holy Spirit through the truth of your word. And the words that we've just sung, they're so great. A great encouragement as well. They tell us, they remind us that Jesus will hold on to us. That he must. Because left to ourselves... Our faith would not prevail. The tempter. Our faith would not fail and the tempter would prevail, Lord. Left to ourselves. Left to ourselves. We're not not strong enough to keep our hold upon you. We, instead, we choose the easy, the more comfortable path. We grow cold apart from you. Unloving. Disobedient not trusting you as we ought. And so we confess our sin and our need, and we praise you for an all-sufficient Savior in Jesus. Lord, thank you for this grace, for your faithfulness and your great love. Encourage us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said... That encouragement is the oxygen of the soul. I love that saying. Encouragement is the oxygen of the soul. So apparently we need it. It's important for us to be encouraged. And this has been already so encouraging this morning. It's important for us to encourage one another. And as followers of Christ, we know that the greatest encouragement of all is found in God's Word. And this is an encouragement that's meant to be shared and lived out. What we see in Acts is a teaching and proclaiming and people living it out. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he's telling us a a great history he gives details as a historian that have been proven true over and over and over again throughout the years. And even though this is an account of the, of the early church, and most of it the ministry of the Apostle Paul, there are a lot of details that Luke leaves out. For example, we just went through chapter 19 of Acts, and it tells us about Paul's stay in Ephesus. He was there three years, and yet we're only told about a few events in one chapter. Luke, Luke tells us about Paul's encounter with, well, you know, some of those things. This encounter with twelve disciples who only knew the baptism of John. He tells us about these hard-hearted, uh, unbelieving Jews the extraordinary miracles that, that remind us of Jesus. He tells us about people with wrong motives. Remember those um, itinerant Jewish exorcists trying to cast out demons only to be overpowered and exposed. He tells us about the reaction to that event and how people realized that they couldn't serve two masters and so they they gather all these very, very valuable books of magic and burned them. And then we learn about how the idol industry was threatened by all of this, and they responded with this great riot. Obviously, many other things happened over this three-year period of time. So you kind of wonder, how does Luke choose? How does he choose what he's going to tell us? Why does he tell us what he does tell us? He didn't tell us about what was really extremely concerning uh, to him, he didn't, uh, to Paul. He doesn't tell us about what was really primary in Paul's concern and heart and mind. That he took a trip to visit the church in Corinth while he was staying at Ephesus. He visited the church in Corinth. He doesn't tell us about Paul writing his first letter to them from Ephesus and how, how he anguished over this letter because it was such a strong rebuke to their sin and division. We, we piece these things together through Paul's writings, but Luke doesn't go there because he's not simply giving us a history of what happened. No, in telling us this history, he wants us to see certain truths about our faith. I like what James Boyce reminds us of. He suggests that Luke's purpose in writing was not strictly historical, but theological. And sometimes his theological concerns override the historical ones. We learn a lot through history. And so much of the New Testament is meant to remind us of of events that have occurred Before then, of of these big themes throughout the Old Testament that have to do with God's one big story of redemption. Luke wants us to see things like this well, this transition from the old and the greater reality and fulfillment in the new covenant. He wants us to see the Holy Spirit falling all over the people of God. That this fulfills God's promise to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. And so we see that the people of God are not according to race, but according to promise. It's meant to show us Jesus, that he is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. And so all who are in Christ are heirs according to God's promise. And the proof of this is seen when the Holy Spirit falls upon various people groups. The proof of this, it began at Pentecost, right? In Jerusalem. And then similar events like Pentecost throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke wants us to see the Holy Spirit falling upon the people whom God has chosen to be his. According to promise. It's important that we see the church as the fulfillment of God's story of redemption. It's not not a separate people group alongside Israel that's called the church. It's not a a new tree or a new vine. It's the same tree. The same vine that's revealed to be Jesus. Jesus. And sadly, some unbelieving branches are broken off. And we see this over and over again in that the continual conflicts that we see throughout the book of Acts, well, they're with unbelieving Jews persecuting the church. Unbelieving Jews who are hard-hearted and reject the one true vine of Christ while... God is grafting in new branches to that one tree that's always existed throughout redemptive history. He's grafting in these branches of Gentiles into the same tree, the same vine. And so, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. That's a that's a big theme that we need to understand, and it brings a lot of clarity concerning what the church is. Luke wants us to pick up on these theological themes to remember how God's people have continually responded throughout the Old Testament. So we, it's discouraging, isn't it? A lot of times we will read through the Old Testament, and it's like rebellion, hard hearts. Over and over and over again. But now, in the new, he takes out a heart of stone. And he gives us a heart of flesh. He wants us to hear, Luke wants us to hear about a group called The Way. And he wants us, in using that phrase, he wants us to think again. All these things are are intended for us to think about what we know in the Old Testament, what we should know in the Old Testament, things that remind, we should be constantly reminded of things. So when we hear the way, we should think of Isaiah. We should think of a reference to a highway called the way of holiness. Or or we should think of, oh, how God, how he made a way of deliverance for his people who were enslaved. Or a way through the Red Sea. Or a way through the wilderness. And ultimately, the fulfillment of this is in the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Luke wants us to remember Israel's history of syncretism. How the, again, so frustrating, right? How the people of God, they'd leave up these Asherah poles and compromise their faith with the false idols of the surrounding pagan nations. He wants us to see, and we've seen this throughout Acts, haven't we? He wants us to see a a greater slave master of sin and false idols. But now what we see under the new is... Christ disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame. We just saw some open shame in chapter 19, right? Triumphing over them in Christ. Luke wants us to see the shame of idols that they they make big promises and yet never deliver. That they enslave people, that they What's the result? They create division. They create riots. We saw a big riot. They create hatred, persecution. While what's the contrast to that? The gospel does something absolutely different. The gospel frees. It unites. It brings about community. A community that gives, that gives us a taste of what every person craves and will ultimately be given in Christ. And now, in, in chapter 20, Luke emphasizes this, the oxygen we all need in Paul's ministry of encouragement. He begins with Paul encouraging people in verses 1 and 2. And then we see something really encouraging at the end of this, this section in verse 12. As Pastor Bill preached last week, life, life is hard and for those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are, we are reassured in our sufferings. We are given a hope that Jesus, Jesus is always going to hold on to us and refine us through these sufferings. He's going to make us into a people who are both encouraged and who encourage one another in the truth of the gospel. Encouraging one another, it's, it's important We are Western people living on the West Coast, even worse, very individualistic. Keep to ourselves. And yet what we see, what we're called to, is to be a community, to encourage one another. Encouraging one another is important. And getting, yesterday, simple things, like men getting together and eating. Fellowshipping, hearing a a good devotional from Pastor Bill encouraging us from Titus two that the older men are called to to a certain godliness, but not a godliness in isolation. No, it's meant to encourage, encourage younger men with the encouragement that we've learned, that we've received, or those older men have learned and received it's a ni- it's not a it's not a nice option we think of it sometimes as option it's not a nice option no it's it's god's design for his church it's a, it's as necessary as breathing is to life it's the oxygen of the soul so let's read let's read our text acts 20 verses 1 to 12. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's receive it with thankful hearts. Acts 20, verses 1 to 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he he prolonged his speech until midnight... There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him. And taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is God's Word. You may be seated. A church. A church without encouragement is like a crowded upper room with a bunch of lamps consuming oxygen. It's like, it's like trying to listen to a teaching after consuming a large portion of brisket hash. It's a good thing that Pastor Bill kept it short. We need oxygen for the soul. And Paul's ministry of encouragement is seen in several ways, ending with the seemingly understated description of the people being not a little comforted. Not a little comforted after a young man was raised from the dead. And the ministry of Paul, by word and spirit, has raised many of us from death to everlasting life. Luke Luke tells us about an event wanting us to, again, when you hear stories like this, think of, oh, that sounds familiar. He wants us to think about other events where the dead are raised to life. Think of Elijah and Elisha falling all over, laying on two different times, these dead children. And through the Spirit of God, breathing life Into them. The Greek word being used communicates this idea of falling all over. And so we're meant to think of these events. We're meant falling all over. We're meant to think of Pentecost and the Spirit of God falling all over them, bringing about spiritual life. Jesus saying, Think of We're meant to think of Jesus also Remember he said about the dead child Don't worry she's not dead But asleep Paul says something similar there Eutychus was dead He says no there's life in him It's an amazing event And it's also amazing that That after raising this young boy Eutychus Well they don't rush him to the doctor. They don't go immediately home. No, they stay hours longer. Hours they stay for hours longer to breathe in the oxygen of the soul, the word of God. Okay, but let's let's start at the beginning of, of our text. Did you see it? Did you see the encouragement all over the place? He bookends it. He begins with encouragement and ends with encouragement. In verse 1, Paul gathers the various disciples in Ephesus and, and it says that after encouraging them, he said goodbye and then leaves for Macedonia. What do you, how, do you, how do you think he encouraged them? The preaching of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word. What does he do as he travels throughout Macedonia? Verse 2 says that he gave the people, these various churches that that Paul planted, he gave them much encouragement on his way to Greece, or more specifically, Corinth, where he stayed for three months. It was time for Paul to go, remember? To to leave the place that he had called home, Ephesus, for the past three years, and to go for the sake of encouragement. He goes for the sake of encouraging more people. We read in chapter 19 that Paul was resolved in the spirit to travel back through Macedonia and Achaia or Greece in order to head back to Jerusalem. And from there, he'd eventually go to Rome. And one of the reasons for going back to Jerusalem had to do with a very practical means of encouragement. What's Paul doing as he stops in these various churches, and why do we see this this list of names, people who are who are apparently going with Paul to Jerusalem? Well, we read in Second Corinthians eight that Paul was he was collecting financial gifts from these various churches in Macedonia, and encouraging he was encouraging. The Corinthian church, hey, follow their... Exi- Let me tell you about these Macedonian churches. You need to do what, what they do, what they did. And then from Romans 15, we see that this was to bring aid to the believers in Jerusalem. It's gathering all of these gifts, these financial gifts to bring aid to suffering believers in Jerusalem. Paul writes this. Paul, Paul wrote this description in Romans 15. He wrote the book of Romans during this three-month stay in Corinth before heading back to Jerusalem with this very encouraging gift to believers in need. So encouragement, it's not only given in his preaching and teaching, which is he certainly did as he visited these churches. It's not only in, in giving godly counsel to someone who's hurting, no, it's also a matter of meeting the practical needs of others. It's what we saw, should remind us of something, what we saw at the beginning of Acts, right? Acts 2. Remember, even before Paul came on the scene, right after the day of Pentecost, we read about a a radical fellowship and love. Yes, there was teaching and preaching and praying, but they were also meeting the financial needs of some who were suffering there. And they were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to the needy. It's It's what Barnabas Barnabas, the son of encouragement, did at the end of chapter four. He sold the field and he brought the money to the apostles for them to help the needy, to encourage them. And sadly, we there's also this theme when we see the work of God. We see counterfeits, and sadly, that's that's what Ananias and Sapphira are. They're they're counterfeits of the of the encouragement that Barnabas did. They sold the field, but they lied about how much the field was worth, because their motives, their motives were not to encourage, but to gain for themselves. And this should remind us of this theme, this theme where God's, where, where, where people, people counterfeit the work of the Holy Spirit. And they want to use God's power and rob him of his glory, the theme of selfish pride as opposed to encouraging others through spirit-produced sacrifice and service. We saw it with Ananias and Sapphira, we saw it with Simon the magician in chapter eight, and we saw it chapter nineteen, these itinerant exorcists. The lie is exposed. Their motives are wrong. The people respond, and then the people see and respond with a fear of the Lord. Paul is going from church to church, encouraging them in the teaching of the gospel, but he's also encouraging them toward action, to be used of the Spirit to encourage the saints who are suffering in Jerusalem. So it's important that our giving... Our generosity truly is by the Spirit for the encouragement of others. And not not simple duty. Certainly not a matter of pride. It's about Christ's church. It's about community. It's about unity. It's about the glory of God. Our faith is, is not only in word, but also in deed. It's not only in our in our heads with the truths that we know, it's in our hearts, it's in our motivations, it's about our hands that actually carry it out. The ministry of encouragement is by the grace of God and it will involve head and heart and hands. James, who was the the leader of the Jerusalem church wrote if a brother or sister is poorly clothed lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is it so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead this kind of encouragement that we see happening in these churches of Macedonia it's radical it's, it's unnatural. It's a result of God's grace in our lives through the Spirit. In fact, here's how radical it is. Let's look at this. This description in 2 Corinthians 8, it is, it's beyond generous. Humanly speaking, it's, it's weird. It's beautiful. Here's how Paul described it. To the church in Corinth, trying to encourage encouraging them to be like them. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. So God's doing this. The grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in the severe test of affliction, their affliction, their abundance of joy and their their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. It's This is unnatural. It's the... Supernatural grace of God that causes people who are experiencing their own extreme poverty and test of affliction, it causing them to be generous to others. If we're going through a tough time, emotionally or financially, and a and a need comes to our attention, what what's natural is for us to say, oh, "I want. I just can't." I can't help because we're going through our own stuff right now. And I don't say this to make anyone feel guilty. I just want you to see how strange this really is. Paul says that they gave they gave according to their means. They gave what they could afford to give first. But then he says that they gave beyond their means. So apparently a second offering comes about. Not because of guilt not because of pride, but in an abundance of joy that only comes about when we see the grace of God and we trust him to provide. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? Don't you want to have that kind of, well, freedom? There's a freedom there. There's a, there's a certain kind of joy there. There's a There's a kind of connection and love and community. It's like oxygen for the soul. These people gave above and beyond. And then the weird part is they didn't even stop there. It says that they they begged Paul, take another offering, Paul. We want to give more, please. Can we give more? (laughs) How is this possible? It says that they gave themselves first to the lord that's how it's possible that is they trusted the lord they had a bigger vision than themselves they knew of his overflowing grace and trusted that god would provide for them they didn't have the idol of money they were free free from that slave master they served only one master not two no syncretism with them. No mixing of trusting God and trusting their own wealth and abilities. And I have to confess, I say that I trust God. I know it in my head, but then I have to ask myself, where's my heart? And when He's leading me to give even more, will I follow through with my hands? Our faith is a matter of head and heart and hands, and I'm not. I'm not teaching this because I want to convince you to give more. That's not it. It's the text. There's not a particular need that 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 I have in mind. Uh, yes, there's always something, and we pray for our missionaries this morning. We want to meet the needs of our missionaries, and and many of you have. Have given in the past above and beyond. Many of you have given this this sort of way, raising enough money. Uh, when was that? A couple of years ago for that car for Sam and Millie. I remember the elders sitting down and talking about what was needed, you know, with these rough roads and and how much it was going to be. And it was like, really, you think? <laughs> you know, COVID just happened and people are a little. Nervous about finding it, you think you think, and you get above and beyond in a matter of months to meet the need of our missionary friend, our brother and sister in Africa for the sake of the gospel. So I know that many of you know this kind of encouragement, or even the encouragement of being on the receiving end of an unexpected gift, going through your own particular struggle. It's beautiful. And it's important for us to recognize this because it's the grace of God in our lives. It's God providing. It's about loving what God loves, the church, and not out of guilt or fear or thinking it's some spiritual pyramid scheme where we give and we get. Sadly, that's been taught for way too long no it's a it's an overflow of joy wanting god to be glorified in and through the practical workings of his church the church is beautiful so what we see in verses 1 through 6 of our text is a is an encouragement of the gospel knowing desiring doing head heart hands and this list of names of those who well They represent each church. They want to participate. There's an accountability there, but they're they're representing those churches. They're going to to bless these brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. From the Berean church, there's Sopater. From the church in Thessalonica, we, we read there's Aristarchus and Secundus. And a little side note here. These two names are... Are a huge encouragement of what the church is meant to be. Aristarchus means, well, aristocrat. Aristocracy. The root meaning of the name has to do with the words best and rule, being ruled by the best possible people, having to do with power. This is this is upper levels of society. So Aristarchus is upper class. Whereas secundus is Latin for second, or number two. A name like this would be given to a slave. And he's not, even, he's not even the slave in charge. The slave in charge would have been called primus, number one. And the slave who carried out his duties, the slave of the slave, would have had a name like number two. Secundus. Don't you love that? Aristarchus and Secundus. Because in the world we are constantly dealing with a a hierarchy of abuse and preferential treatment. But in the church, in the church the upper class and the lowly slave are one in Christ. They're equal brothers representing the church in Thessalonica isn't that great it's beaut- it, it's the beauty the encouragement of the church we're one in Christ and not only are they one but they're they're un- these gentiles are going to bless needy Jews brothers and sisters in Jerusalem so we also see from the church in Derby there's Gaius there's Timothy from Lystra Couple of representatives from churches in Asia, and Luke, Luke gives us a clue whenever he starts speaking in the terms of we. (laughs) um, apparently he joins back up in the in the story here. So he's joining back up with Paul in Philippi. Okay, how is this? How think about how encouraging that is? A collection of people. Who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other are united in in head, heart, and hands to encourage another people group who previously viewed them as unclean so once again, Paul learns about another plot by the Jews to kill him and instead of instead of Sailing from Corinth, he travels travels back up through Macedonia, meets up with these representatives, sends them ahead to Troas to arrange for travel from there. In verse 6, Luke uses the word we, meaning that he rejoined Paul and Philippi, where they stayed five days before meeting up with the group in Troas. In Troas... They all say another seven days. And verse 7 tells us another interesting story along the way. First of all, it's significant that Luke mentions a meeting. A meeting on the first day of the week. On Sunday. It's a worship service. They break bread together. They talk or fellowship. And Paul, he gives a very long, ser- very long sermon. Once again, Luke is showing us a theme where the old and the new, they're overlapped here. Unbelieving Jews under the old, they continue to keep the Sabbath and worship on Saturday. But believing Jews and Gentiles now Those who see Jesus as the Messiah begin something new, and they worship on Sunday. Why? Why does this happen? Something great must have happened, right? Something great must have happened to, you know, something incredible, so great that it would change hundreds of years of tradition of when they gather to worship. What could it possibly be? Well, Jesus rose. On the first day of the week. It's the Lord's day. Our lives revolve around the resurrection of Christ. And so, of course, it's the best day to acknowledge as special, as different from all the other days of the week. A day where we worship, where we rest in the one who's done everything for us. The one who's saved us and promises us good There's nothing more encouraging than resting in the One who said, Come to Me. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest or Sabbath for your souls. It's also that theme of, you know, the... the, the physical or the, the pictures of greater realities. With Sabbath, we just think of physical rest and not working. Jesus is that rest. He is our better Sabbath, our ultimate Sabbath, Sabbath giving us rest for our souls. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have the greatest encouragement of all. A Sabbath That includes the physical, but as new things tend to do, it's even better. It's a rest that that is fulfilled in Christ. You can rest in Him because He does the work for you. Sabbath speaks of something greater than, than simply taking a day off. It's the promise of God to provide and give us rest. And Paul tells us all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The old has become new and our worship each Lord's Day is a reminder, it's an expression of the greatest encouragement of all that the promise of rest finds its yes in Jesus. So this is the the context of this worship service on the first day of the week. And the story Luke tells, well, it's, it's... It's both funny and encouraging. And obviously it's not funny that a young man (laughs) fell to his death. I'm not that cold or insensitive. But it's kind of funny that his name is Eutychus. Eutychus, which means lucky (laughs) or fortunate. He doesn't seem very lucky, does he? To fall out of a window to his death. But it's very fortunate for Lucky that Paul was there to bring him back to life. It's also funny that someone would actually fall asleep while hearing the Apostle Paul. Ah, it gives comfort to every pastor who appreciates this reality. Because every pastor sees people either sleeping or, or just trying to pretend that they're not sleeping. Uh, I, one of my favorites is, you know, I'm sitting and um, you open your Bible up and you rest your elbows there and you look like you're really studying. But then if your hands give way, that's a, that's a dead giveaway. You know, the very first time that I preached, I, I'll never forget. There was a man sitting right about where Steve Wrinkle is, just dead center Obvious view of me. First time I'm preaching. Right in the middle of, of the sermon. And he's, he's sitting there. Head, head is given away. Back. And his mouth is wide open. And I just about cracked up. I had, to, I had to control myself. Not to just start laughing. Or pointing. You know. We've all been there. And there's no hiding it. But lucky... Lucky had a good excuse. Luke, Luke tells us what Lucky's problem was here. Luke tells us that there were that he was in this crowded, crowded upper room with lamps burning, and that he was sitting next to a window means he was he's trying to stay awake. He needed some fresh air. All the oxygen in the room is just being taken up here. But even sitting by the window was not enough. Okay, so what's your excuse? Huh? We're on the first floor, big room, no candles burning here, and I'm not preaching for hours. I'm not going on and on and, well, not to this extent. I don't, I don't think Luke, it's an interesting, I don't think he intends an illustration here so much. He's not saying, he's not saying, wake up, oh sleeper. Wake up to the reality of your sin and your need of a savior. Sounds like something Spurgeon would probably go off on, doesn't it? He's not saying, get right with God because you never know when your last day might be. When you'll have to face your judge. These things are true and we could... We could apply them in that way. But I think what Luke has in mind is the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and his comfort to us. I think he wants us to see, he wants us to see Peter and Paul as being like Elijah and Elisha, prophets of God who are who are like the ultimate prophet Jesus, the resurrection and alive. The, these, are the, these are the occurrences where the dead are raised to life. Peter raised Tabitha to life. And now Paul raises the young man Eutychus. Paul Paul bends over him and wraps his arms around him, very uh, Elisha-like. And it reminds us of Elisha, stretching himself upon this dead child, face to face, breathing on him. With this description of the flesh of the child becoming warm and and him coming back to life. And what this communicates is the Spirit of God through Elisha, through Paul imparting life. Paul does the same thing. And once again, Luke uses the Greek word parakaleo. In verse 1, it's translated as encouraging. And here in verse 12, as comforted. Luke bookends this story with a word that describes the Holy Spirit. The paraclete. The one Jesus said he would send as another help, helper. Another comforter. And now the paraclete is encouraging people through Paul's ministry of the word. He's imparting resurrection life. And here's an application for us. If you belong to Jesus, if you're indwelt by this same paraclete, the same helper and comforter who who works through us to impart life in those around us, to, to give encouragement, you're meant to give encouragement, oxygen of the soul to needy people. Look at what happens after this this shocking event. They break bread. They remember the death of Jesus until he comes again. They celebrate the resurrection. And it says that Paul conversed with them a long while until daybreak. I think they had some questions. Questions are great. You think they had some questions for Paul after what they just witnessed? And you must know that he he must have opened God's Word. There must have been some incredible teaching here. And even though this boy fell to his death and was raised to life, they, they didn't even take him home right away. He just died. You'd think... We better get you home. This has been a traumatic event, son. Lucky. <laughs> they didn't take him home. They didn't take him to a doctor. It says a lot about the importance of God's word, doesn't it? That after all of this, they stay and want to know more. To know the gospel and be strengthened, to be encouraged by the ministry of the Word. I think that's what Luke is getting at here. The encouragement of the Word. So let me close with this encouragement. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. Hear the Word of Christ. We have this ministry because of the Holy Spirit, where we hear, where we know, where we love and do what God would have us to do. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks for your word. The word that we, the word that we hear because your spirit has given us ears to hear and hearts to believe. And for the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one in whom we rest. And because of this great assurance and encouragement, we're we're made able to do the work He has called us to do. So Lord, help us to respond in that way. Lord, give us a right vision of Your church. That we're meant to love one another. That we're meant to care for one another. To encourage one another. One another. We're meant to be one, united as the body of Christ and witnesses to an unbelieving world. Lord, give us this kind of encouragement and use us for the sake of your glory, that, that we believe and desire to act and actually do act in ways that refresh people with your word. We give thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.